And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and you can catch me daily, hourly, sometimes by the minute, on my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, or on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. There are a couple of pages there uh, that I'm associated with. And on this edition of Novak Now, I want to try to do something different from what I usually do, and that is try to hit four or even five topics. I know that's very ambitious of me. For those of you who know, I like to go in depth into almost usually just one topic. But there's so much going on, and uh, I think it's important to try to get um, a number of points out there just for points of clarity. I I think 90% of my motivation to do this program and to continue to be in the news media, to continue to write my editorial columns, which, by the way, are, again, appearing on CNBC.com. For those of you who like to read those, they're not. And and for those of you who are economics or math-phobic, don't worry. Uh... I don't do any hardcore stock market, financial news, economic charts type stuff. I talk about all those things, but usually in very, very layman's terms. Um, but also sometimes don't talk about them at all. Uh, in fact, my latest column is all about how running for president, if you're wondering why so many Democrats running for president right now, uh, I talk about how they need the money. <laughs> and uh, you know, you, some of us often think that running for president costs a lot of money, and it does for the people who make the donations. But for the people running, it's increasingly becoming a financial boon to do so. Um, Not so much to put money in their own pockets, although that has been done, and very recently that can be done, but to bankroll their other political ambitions. So if you have no chance in the world to become president like Bill de Blasio or even somebody more prominent like a Beto O'Rourke, I explain how running for president is a great way to raise money for the other offices that you are likely to run for. And uh, that's my latest column for CNBC, and I'll, I'll have about two or three of those per week. So, but my, I have to say my biggest motivation for doing all this is clarification. Uh, I'm, I'm very much bent on clarifying some of the issues that it feels like nobody else mentions when they're doing big stories. Um, most of the time, not focusing on stories that no one else is focusing on. Uh, I'm very happy when I am able to find a story that no one else is focusing on because that means that I'm doing a little bit more work and I found something interesting and I'm moving away from the herd. But most of the time, uh, I'm following the big stories that everyone else is. I mean, it's not like we're completely in this business off the target when it comes to the stories we, we focus on. I think that the tone and the way that those stories are focused on are often wrong. I think actually most of the time they are wrong. But the choice of big stories is not as, as often incorrect as the way that they are covered. So there's just a, a few stories out there that I just think need to be clarified. So the thing that's really, of course, for, foremost on, on, on the plate today and in this week is that the, this, this latest round of Israeli elections is upon us. Um, and for those of you who have been following Novak now and following the general news about it, you know that this election is, a, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a do-over. Uh, the April elections came in. They were relatively clear results, very, very close. But the Likud party, from uh, you know, under Benjamin Netanyahu, the the longtime prime minister of Israel, did get the most votes of any of the parties, just barely over the blue and white party. And right wing and mostly right wing parties got most of the seats in the Knesset, but they could not come to a coalition deal. Uh, folks who know anything about Israeli politics, this is one of the first things you learn is that since, gee, I guess the late 50s, early 60s, coalition governments have been necessary to rule the state of Israel. There's not enough 
support for any one party to get the 61-seat majority that you need in the Knesset. There's 120 seats, so you need 61 seats. And because of that, you have to have coalition. You have to join in with other parties. And I think that some of the thinking behind this is, well, we won't force a very high threshold number for a party to get into Knesset. And they keep raising it, but it's still not high enough. In other words, if you get about three or between three and four percent of the vote, you get to go into the Knesset. Um, and I think the, 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 the feeling is like, well, we'll get these groups in the political landscape to join together because of that rule. And that way there won't be too many parties. And of course, it hasn't worked out that way. There's so many parties. It's very fractured. The only time where there's real pressure, true pressure to cooperate politically is after an election and a coalition needs to be built. And there was no successful coalition built after this election in April. And so they had to do it all over again. And there are worries that turnout is going to be low, as you would expect. Uh, you know, if you have to go vote all the time, you know, it, does, it does hurt turnout. And there's worries that there could be some real weird results because of that. On the other hand, the polls, which are usually kind of unreliable, and I'll talk about why they're un- unreliable in a moment in Israel. But the polls are showing, and I think that they may get one or two of the parties wrong, but so far the trend that almost all the polls are showing that I think is generally correct is that people are going to kind of vote the same way they did in April. So the question is turnout. The question is whether there's going to be some kind of quirky move somewhere that might change someone's vote at the last moment. But you know, the reason why the polls in a country like Israel get, are, are wrong so very often uh, first of all, there's a general bias in the way that polls are done. This is a mathematical bias against, I, I should say actually more of a cultural bias, against more conservative and right-wing voters. This is true all over the world. Uh, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of conservative and right-wing voters aren't participating in polls as much. They're not available for the pollsters as much to find because a lot of conservative and right-wing voters tend to be self-employed, self-business owners, and they don't take phone calls that aren't business-related almost ever. If you know somebody like that, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so they get underpolled uh, for whatever reason. I don't think it's necessarily a political bias. I think it's just sort of a cultural thing where it's harder for pollsters to get in contact with center and center-right voters. So this, that's one problem. The other problem is this. This is a purely mathematical fact. It's counterintuitive, but it's mathematical. The smaller the country or the state that you're polling, the harder it is to get accurate numbers. In other words, let's take the United States, for example. The polls, for example, the 2016 election, the nationwide 2016 election, by the time the election finally ended, the national polls weren't that far off. You know, they overstated what they thought would be the popular vote win for Hillary Clinton a little bit. But for the most part, their prediction that Hillary Clinton would win based on the popular vote numbers... Well, the popular vote numbers weren't that far off because the large national landscape of the United States with, I guess, over 200, I mean, something, you know, between, I guess, 150 million people or or something like that, or probably about 130 million or 120 million people vote. They get, they do pretty well with that huge sampling. You think, wow, how could they be right about that, but be wrong about Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and those states that clearly turned the tide for President Trump and got him the election, how could they be wrong about all those three states? That's a much smaller sampling size, right? And the answer is, yes, that's right. But, you know, in the United States, 
people still move on average about once every four years. Now, for those of you who have never moved in your life or lived in the New York area or Florida or wherever you're listening to me, um, that might seem very foreign to you. But most Americans, the average American does move quite a bit. I, I'm one of them. I've been living in the same uh, town for 15 years now, and that's by far a record for me. <laughs> I've never lived in the same you know, t- county or <laughs> for, for anything close to that. But most Americans move once every four years. And if you take a look at my, my life, I'm very much ahead of that pace. I've had 19 permanent addresses in my 48 years. So I, I've moved on average much more than once every four years. So the average American, let's imagine a pollster is, is following you. And you move from one part of the United States to another or from one state to another once every four years, which is true for the average American. So your popular vote number is not going to be wrong because you're still an American voter. You just might be voting in Nebraska now, and last year you were voting in Texas. But your state-by-state number is obviously going to be changed. And guess what? That's how we play this game in this country. By the way, that's going to be hopefully my next column for CNBC, (laughs) how we continue to show polls and analyze elections in this country as if they are national, and we don't have any election that's a national election. All of our elections in this country for president, and for even the nomination process, are state by state. That's how we play this game. And that's how we need to look at who the front runner is. That's how we need to take a look at the polls. And this is why the Democrats' rules for who gets on the debate stage are so insane. Because that's not how it works. You don't have a national poll, a national election for your, that's based on the popular vote, for anything connected to president in this country. In the primaries, it's about the primary states. And in the national, and in the general election, it's also about, it's about the electoral college from state by state. So that is another reason why I think it's hard to poll in Israel because people are, it's a smaller sample size. It's harder to get hold of some of the people who really represent a community. I don't think people move around as much on average in Israel. But the point is it's, it's harder to get a hold of people in a smaller, smaller area because things change within a municipality and people's minds get changed and their contact numbers change. And it's just, it's just more difficult to do. And I think Israel also has so many different culturally fragmented societies. You know, here in the United States, you can walk down the street in Manhattan and you see a lot of diverse people. That, I'm not saying you don't see that, but everyone's kind of going to the same place. There's a lot of people going to work, doing these kinds of things. In Israel, you have fragmented. You have the Arab population, you have the Haredi population, you have a more secular population, and they do live very, very different lives. I think here in the United States, the many numbers of ethnicities and different ways people uh, live their personal lives are, uh, is, is much different from, I think, our public lives, which are much more uh, homogenous in this country than they are in Israel. So I think, I think that's another challenge for the pollsters. But my frustration here about the Israeli elections is that the idea that you know, we want to have everyone in Israeli society get a chance to feel represented electorally, politically, and democratically but it's led to this incredible fracture, and, you know, listen, Jews are contentious. Jews don't often get along with one another. We, you know, I don't need to dig into a stereotype here, I think, to, for folks to kind of agree with me here. There, there's, just, there's a lot of debate. Go to your next synagogue board meeting, and you're, you're, you'll see what I'm talking about. And the, the, the relatively low threshold rule, the fact that Israel does not do regional, regionally-based elections, I mean, they have elections for mayor, but I'm talking about in, in, in Knesset, you run for Knesset on a nationwide list. They don't have someone saying, okay, here's our, uh, here's our Likud party candidate for Jerusalem, and here's our Likud party candidate for Tel Aviv. That's not how it works. By the way, only Israel and Holland have that no regional rule for parliamentary elections. So that also hurts 
the chances for coalitions and things like that. I don't know how to fix it. I'm not here to say, oh, here's what Israel should do to make sure that they don't have to go through these excruciating coalition deals and that the the general right-wing nature of the country, which it is. I mean, a strong plurality of Israel is right-wing. In the last poll that I saw, which I really thought was a a reliable one, 41% of the country said they want a right-wing government. And only 26% said they wanted a center-left government. That's a big gap in a country that otherwise is split along a lot of different lines. So... I think that this is a country that wants a right-wing government, but the right-wing parties can't get together enough, even for a brief enough time, to, to agree to create some kind of larger party. And this is a failure on behalf of the right. It's a failure. You know, the left has similar problems, but there's fewer of them now, so they don't look as splintered. But politics is about making deals, and it's also about hypocrisy. Many of you have seen me write that politics is hypocrisy. By definition, to be a political person and to be involved in politics, you have to be pretty hypocritical very often because you're going to make deals with people on issues that you denounce your opponents for. That's what works and that's what happens in politics. It's one of the reasons why I don't run for office. <laughs> and, you know, it's, but you have to do that sometimes. And Israel feels like it, it just can't make it happen. And I would hope that perhaps. After this election results, somebody will be able to form a, a responsible, viable coalition rather quickly because Israel can't continue in this electoral limbo. It's not good. Second topic I want to talk about is, of course, the wider Middle East and the, the big story that we're seeing right now, which is this attack on the Saudi oil assets on Saturday, an oil field and an oil processing plant. I guess the Houthi rebels from Yemen, who are backed by Iran, are taking responsibility, but the whole world is blaming Iran, and rightfully so, the United States and Israel and Saudi Arabia, all saying that Iran was more than just backing the Houthis on this. These were very, very sophisticated attacks. The Houthis themselves could not have pulled this off. And um, Iran is is causing... uh, What Iran is doing right now is kind of the worst possible reaction that a nation can have to something uh, for world stability. You know, the old joke... Well, the old line, I guess I should say, from, from that song, if I can't have you, I don't want nobody, baby. You know, Iran is, oil is being sanctioned by the United States. It's harder and harder for them to, to, to sell their oil. So they've decided to do worse than, if I can't have you, I don't want nobody, baby. They've decided that if, if people can't have our oil, I don't want anyone to have oil, and they're starting to attack the Saudi oil. As opposed to doing what the sanctions are intended to do, which is to get them to completely scrap their nuclear program, which they secretly were continuing even during the Iran deal. Now that the U.S. has pulled out of it, now they are publicly violating. Um, The idea that the sanctions will make these rogue regimes behave properly, it it almost never works. Although you have to do it because you certainly can't continue to bankroll them. So it's sort of a catch-22. The sanctions don't work to change these regimes from doing their bad things. But if you don't have sanctions, then you bankroll them to continue to do their bad things. It's really a frustrating situation. Um, one would hope that the Iranian people or someone within the Iranian government would try to hopefully peacefully push through a better regime. Who knows? But we're in a bad situation with this because clearly the Iranians have decided now that they could, that it's in their, they think it's in their interest to attack the oil industry in general, and that way everyone will be suffering like they're suffering. Um, they really are trying to instigate some kind of military attack on them. I, it appears to be that way. And then they, I guess they're hoping for world sympathy then. I guess they're hoping for to sow discord within countries like the United States. If we did a, a, more, a more of a full-scale attack on Iran, certainly 
the splintered United States uh, political uh, arena would start to, to turn even more on President Trump if that happened. And maybe that's the kind of may- – I assume that's the kind of mayhem they want to, they want to start. I'm saying this now because it, you know this is going to happen. In, in the coming months, you're going to have people saying that it wasn't Iran or that it wasn't even the Houthis, that it was some kind of false flag operation. These kind of conspiracy theorist malcontents spring up all the time. And I'm not saying that because the United States has always responded to attacks properly. You know, the Gulf of Tonkin attack, which was the excuse for President Johnson to really escalate the Vietnam War, I don't think that was a, a, a lie or some kind of propaganda I- incident. But I do think that the response with the ramping up in the Vietnam War was a mistake. So it's, I'm not defending every, every response that the United States has had to attacks like this and saying, you know, they're totally justified. I'm not saying that. Or, the, or I'm saying that they've been perfectly executed. But there have been times when they have been properly executed, for example, the first Gulf War and other times. And... Either way, you can't ignore these things. One more thing coming out of the Middle East uh, that, that I want to talk about is uh, a Netflix special that I watched over the weekend or leading into the weekend and then through the weekend. This is the new special, uh, the six-episode special series. So you can watch it in a, in a, in a week. If you, it, it's not one of those long binge-watching commitments you have to make. It's a little bit less than six hours. Like it's six episodes of about 50 minutes each. So it's about five hours total. And this is the story of Eli Cohen, uh, the great and heroic Israeli spy who infiltrated the highest levels of the Syrian government in the early 1960s. I don't want to give away too much of the story. A lot of you listening know the story just from your history. Um, maybe you even remember the very compelling exhibit in the Diaspora Museum. Or I, actually, I guess it was the Israel Museum. The Israel Museum used to have a very a long-running exhibit about the life of Eli Cohen with a bunch of his personal artifacts and a number of illustrations and graphics and other multimedia uh, things that would tell you his story. And that's how I learned about Eli Cohen. I also learned a little bit about him in high school. But this was a very good series. And as with anything with Israel, and especially Israeli history, but anything that's set in Israel or about Israel that's on entertainment television, I'm probably like a lot of you, and I I jump into these things a little bit worried. You know, you worry about how Israel is going to be portrayed. You worry about whether the the facts are going to be correct. You worry worry about whether it's going to be smeared. And usually the, the biggest thing that you see in a lot of these uh, movies or television shows anything have anything to do with Israel, there's a real bias towards making everything sound balanced. In other words, there's a acknowledgement that there's Palestinian or Arab terror against Jews, and they do and they go and they stretch way beyond the limits of fact to try to make some kind of argument that the Jews are just as bad or there's plenty of terrorists among Jews. And that's exactly what's going on right now in this HBO series, Our Boys, which I don't recommend. I watched a little bit of it and read a lot about it, and I just saw that's exactly what they're doing in this series. They're trying to make it sound like there are terrorist elements en masse within the ultra-Orthodox community, which is just simply not true. And it is a very, very lazy and morally bankrupt uh, job by the writers of that show, who come from the far left in Israel, by the way, uh, to smear Israel's right wing and to smear Israel's religious and the whole thing. And I don't recommend that show. But what I do recommend is this show, Spy. Again, it's not a show. It's a six-episode uh, series on Netflix. 
uh, starring Sasha Baron Cohen. And there's some really interesting things about it that I can tell you that don't uh, spoil the the um, the plot. Apparently, the writers or the people who were involved with the project approached Sasha Baron Cohen years ago and wanted him to do uh, your standard two-hour movie about this story. And apparently, he Sasha Baron Cohen did some research on it. And he felt that it really couldn't have been done justice with just a two-hour movie. So he approached them and, and came back to them and said, no, we need to do one of those kinds of Netflix or streaming series or a miniseries, and that's the only way to get this story out properly. And again, it's, it's a five-hour deal, so as Netflix series go, it's really not that much of a commitment, but it's very good. And I can happily report that Israel is not badly or falsely depicted in this series. Um, it definitely puts a, shines a light on espionage work in a way that's not, you know, it's, it's not all glamour and, and, and James Bond. I mean, that's that I think most adult people, even if they don't have any personal experience with any of that, certainly understand that. Um, but it's very well done. And I think it was very, very, um, true to the history. I know that one of Eli Cohen's daughters, um, has made some comments about the series that weren't all positive, but I think in general she she was happy with it. Um, but I think that, it, it, but absolutely, it's worth watching. Uh, if for nothing else, just to kind of learn the history. And one of the things I think you really learn early on is how precarious the early state of Israel's situation was vis-a-vis countries like Syria. You know, we we, we feel. I think a lot of us feel now. Most of us have grown up in a, in a reality where Israel is definitely threatened by terror on a daily basis, but these are not existential threats. Uh, it's it's an absolute disgrace that that Israelis still live uh, vulnerable to an individual. You know, any one of them could be murdered at any time. There's there's that horrible horrible fact that still uh, lies very heavily on the on the Israeli people. But the existential existence of Israel. I mean, the existence of Israel was much more threatened in this period from even countries like Syria. And um, anyway, it, it's, it's, it's a fantastic series, and I highly recommend it. I want to talk one thing now about, uh, to finish up on this edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network, I want to talk about a, a just a 100% domestic story right now and another trend that I don't think people cover. A couple of very, very smart people have, have pinpointed this fact about American voters, and it's, I think, starting to percolate again around another issue. So let me explain what I'm talking about. There's something that uh, someone who I'm I'm happy to say has become sort of a friend of mine, or at least a a strong correspondent and a supporter, and I I support his work a lot as well. And you've heard me mention his name here on Novak Now in the past. And that's Scott Adams, the the cartoonist. Who, by the way, is starting to look like a a true supporter of Israel and a supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu. Not that he was ever um, anything else. But I think that his involvement in politics, and this is the same Scott Adams who writes the Dilbert comic strip, by the way. But I think his involvement in commenting on politics and political trends has brought him to a number of really good places on a lot of issues, um, where otherwise I don't, you know, who knows, who knows what he thought? I mean, I just read his comic strip like the rest of us. Um, but anyway, he identified something very, very interesting about four years ago that he titled The Fake Because. And I know that isn't a real academic sounding term. It sounds like something somebody would say in second grade. But The Fake because, put that in quotes, fake because, is something that Scott Adams identified. And he made his argument for it, and it really compelled me because it, uh, I, I agree with it immediately as soon as I really, really look back at the facts. And I'm kind of a guy who really remembers all the little political facts, who won, who ran, 
all that kind of stuff, both here and in Israel, but, but especially here. And his identification of the fake because uh, is best explained by giving the, a, a real example. So his first explanation of the fake because was the Sarah Palin-John McCain partnership in the 2008 election. A lot of you probably know somebody, and maybe you, you actually think about this about yourself as well. A lot of you probably at least know somebody who in 2008 said something along the lines of, well, I, I really wasn't sure about this inexperienced Barack Obama guy. I didn't really want to vote for him too much. I was considering John McCain, who I liked a little bit more and knew had more experience. But because John McCain chose Sarah Palin, this inexperienced kind of wacky woman, to be his running mate, I couldn't vote for him. So I decided to vote for Barack Obama. And I believe that Scott Adams very accurately portrayed that as a fake because people who say that, in my opinion, were always going to vote for Barack Obama, whether they admitted it to themselves or not, or whether they didn't want to admit it publicly. They really wanted to vote for Barack Obama because they felt like they wanted to vote for an African-American candidate. They liked the way he talked a little bit better. He was more of a smooth character. But you don't want to go to a cocktail party and say, I want to vote for this guy because he looks better and sounds better, even though I know politicians kind of lie all the time and, and all that. That makes you sound like an idiot. So you have to come out and say something like a fake because, like, oh, Sarah Palin, I, I couldn't vote for him after that. And I know a lot of people who say that, and I don't think they're being honest with themselves. I don't think that makes them bad people. It's just, I think it's a real normal human reaction or American voting reaction that we seek out these fake becauses because sometimes we're ashamed to say why we're voting for the real reason why, or even say to ourselves why we're really voting for somebody. So he identified a second fake because for the 2016 election, and that was Hillary Clinton's emails. Now, nobody is saying that Hillary Clinton's conduct with her personal email server was just okay. I certainly don't, and I had been a critic of it long before the elections started to, to come around. But it does seem really fishy that people would say, well, I wasn't going to vote for Trump. I would vote for Hillary Clinton. But that email thing, man, I couldn't vote for her. So I either voted for Trump or I didn't vote or whatever. And you hear a lot of people saying that. That's a very common fake because, in my opinion. And it was a fake because, because and the reason why I believe that is because I have to go, here, here I am, someone who has studied elections, I've had the best education in, in, in general, and I've studied elections on my own, and I've been a real observer of politics and all that kind of stuff. And I have to admit that in 1992, when Bill Clinton came around and started to emerge as a candidate, I kind of immediately liked him. And I never liked her. I never liked Hillary. I didn't really dislike her that much, but I never really liked her. And it wasn't based on anything she had done. It was just the way that she carried herself and talked about herself. Now, if I went to a cocktail party in 2016 and said that, and said, hey, I'm not voting for Hillary because the first second I saw her, I, I knew I didn't like her. You know, people look at me like, that doesn't sound, speak very well of me. I just looked at a person and heard her say a few words and decided I wasn't going to vote for her. Well, I have news for you. This is the way... Even the smartest people in our society choose whom to vote for. And I know that there's some people listening who are going to pound the table and say, no, 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 I look at all the facts and I weigh the pros and cons. Folks, this is the way almost every human, even the most educated and smart people you know, these are the way almost every human decides for whom to vote. But most of us don't want to either admit that to ourselves and certainly not to other people. So we create these fake becauses. And for a lot of folks, the Clinton email scandal, which I think was, was a legitimate scandal and probably a crime. I, I really don't want to, I'm not watering down the importance of what she did because it was big. 
But that was a fake because. And folks, we're seeing another fake because start to percolate now in favor of President Trump. And that is this renewed attack on Brett Kavanaugh. And I have to say this quickly, but for those of you who haven't read, there was an entire smear piece on Brett Kavanaugh again that appeared this weekend in the New York Times. Democrats and liberals went crazy over it, only to find out late Sunday night, and the, and the Times itself published this admission late Sunday night, that, oh, by the way, these new accusations against Brett Kavanaugh, the woman who supposedly was attacked or whatever happened to her, was never interviewed by the Times. She never made any statement to them. And the entire story was based on what some other people said that they saw. And that was not included in the original story. I mean, that is a very material fact. The fact that the actual victim refused to be interviewed and won't talk about it, (laughs) that should have been in there in the original story. And a lot of people are going to say, I don't like President Trump, but when you see what the left does to Brett Kavanaugh, I got to vote for him. And again, I'm not watering down what was done to Brett Kavanaugh. It's a disgrace. But that, if you're voting for President Trump and you say that's the reason, that's what I would call a fake because. Maybe you should think about why you're really voting for him. This is Jake Novak. I've been on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is Novak Now. I hope to speak to you again next week.